that night in, in early December 2017 in Moscow was easily the most terrifying night of my life. I woke up just in the middle of the night with extreme case of, of vertigo, um, with nausea. You know, uh, I had tinnitus, a, a splitting headache. So something really, you know, bad had happened to me. And I was scared. Can I admit it when I talk about it? That's the thing that is really scary about what happened to me, what happened to many others. You know, I had been shot at, rocketed, done all sorts of crazy things all over the world. But this was the most terrifying experience of my life. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In late 2016, CIA officials and State Department employees working at the U.S. Embassy in Havana started experiencing vertigo, vision problems, difficulty concentrating, hearing loss, insomnia, a mysterious illness we now know to be caused by directed energy attacks. Since then, CIA officers and State and Defense Department employees have experienced symptoms on every continent except Antarctica. Some people have only experienced the symptoms in certain places, while others experience them long-term. In late July, NBC News reported that as many as 200 Americans have come forward to describe possible symptoms of the so-called Havana Syndrome, and about half of them are CIA officers or their relatives. One of those officers is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He's an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection, and most recently, the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. So, Mark, first of all, I'm thrilled that you're here in studio with me. This is a privilege these days uh, to get to be here with you. I wonder if we should start with a little bit of background and how you came to be a 26-year veteran of the CIA. And you write in the book that that's equivalent, when you left the CIA, that's equivalent to essentially a four-star general. So listeners, that's who's here in studio with us. So could you give us a little bit of, you know, just in a nutshell, what led you to to that career choice? Sure. So so ultimately, it's my parents' fault. Okay. I tell them that all the, I tell my dad that my mom's passed away, but I tell my dad that all the time. And so, you know, I was I was uh, born in Greece. My father was was Greek. Um, my mom was American. Uh, they moved to the States right after I was born because my father was a, uh, became a professor at Rutgers University. And that's the job he had for, for, you know, four decades. But every summer we went back to Greece, which meant, you know, as a university professor, he had two or three months off. So we traveled a great deal. Um, so he showed me the world. Uh, but it, but there's, there's, there's a more to that story because when I was 10 years old, he, had a, he, uh, he did a sabbatical. He was teaching abroad in Algeria, you know, a North African country, which later on was racked by you know, terrible, uh, you know, terrorist uh, attacks, Islamic fundamentalism, but at the time was relatively safe. So at 10 years old, my mother put me on an airplane at JFK airport um, by myself. And I flew through Paris to Algeria to meet my dad. And we spend one month driving 2000 miles through the Sahara Desert in a beat up old Volkswagen minibus with one of my father's colleagues. And at 10 years old, I thought at that time I was Lawrence of Arabia. Um, I still have a photo of me riding, uh, uh, you know, sitting on a camel that's in, that's in my house. Um, but that's where I really kind of fell in love in the Middle East. And, and so as, you know, later on when, when my dad in particular, you know, had some questions about my career choice, I always say it's, it's his fault. Um, but that, that's where I got this kind of, you know, wanderlust and this, this really yeah. love and desire um, to see things beyond the United States. Yeah. So you were a career operations officer. You'd spent all this time in the Middle East. Uh, in the book, you write about a couple of close calls, rockets being fired at the tower where you liked to read, sure. um, the attack where they rammed through the gate with the truck full of explosives. I think your understanding of risk is a lot different than most people. 
But can you talk about that first night in Moscow when you started experiencing symptoms and what was going through your mind? And, and that's, you know, that's, it's a kind of great, great contrast because I had done a lot of things over the years, which were pretty risky, you know, whether it's serving in, in war zones or just being in the Middle East, you know, at a U.S. government facility that was attacked. But that night in, in early December 2017 in Moscow was easily the most terrifying night of my life. Um, I woke up just in the middle of the night with extreme case of, of vertigo, um, with nausea, you know, uh, I had tinnitus, uh, a splitting headache. Um, so something really, you know, bad had happened to me and I was scared and, you know, I admit that freely in the book and I admit it when I talk about it, you know, I had been shot at, rocketed, done all sorts of crazy things all over the world, but this was the most terrifying experience of my life. And it was covert. I imagine that's probably why, I mean, you didn't know what had happened at that point, did you? Well, no, it's the sense of the unknown. And I think that's the thing that is really scary about what happened to me, what happened to many others. Um, and even as we've kind of had this incredible struggle for healthcare over the, uh, the last couple of years, and even as we've received healthcare, there's still this this great unknown, and, and even not you know uh, uh, a great idea how to treat this. Um, and so I've gone to the you know the best facilities on the planet at Walter Reed's National Intrepid Center of Excellence, but nonetheless, we still don't know exactly how to make people feel better. Um, so it's uh, it's been a, quite a journey. So the wide consensus, at least uh, in the reporting that I've read, is that Russia is most likely behind the attacks. Um, it's called Havana Syndrome, but uh, maybe you can talk a bit about what would motivate Russia to do this. Sure. Now, now I have to kind of you know caveat this is that sure. you know, I retired in two thousand you know nineteen July of two thousand nineteen. So everything I'm talking about is just my own my own opinion, and of course I have my secrecy agreement sure. with with the agency um, that I really do uh, uh, abide by, but. Uh, you know, ultimately, there's there's a couple things that I think is worth taking into consideration. First and foremost, Russia or the Soviet Union, even, but then Russia had these weapons. We know they've been, um, you know, developed and, and tested them in the past. So you just have to, you know, that's a, that's a that's a data point. But then the real kind of analytic uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, discussion should be why would a state actor do this? And yeah. you look at Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has had, you know. Uh, you know, no compunction. I mean, you know, there's 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 nothing stopping him from, you know, uh, uh, under undertaking a campaign really across the globe that's involved what election interference, you know, political assassination. I mean, he, he employed a chemical weapon, an agent in in the UK. Um, you look at the you know uh, uh, cyber attacks, and so ultimately, it's you know what, what I believe is is someone who's uh, uh, overseeing a rogue state. And so the idea that he, um, you know, would abide by any diplomatic norms, I think we can kind of toss that out the window. Yeah. And, and rules in general seem right. not to apply to him or, or serve only as suggestions. They don't. And, and in addition, I'm not sure that the international community has checked, you know, his power and his ambitions enough yeah. as they should have. So we always go through this, you know, every, every several years we go through this war of, you know, sending, you know, sending people home, PNGing people. The diplomats are are, are removed from uh, from the United States or throughout the world as well. There's been all over Europe, for example, Russian intelligence officers and diplomats who've been kicked out of those respective countries. That hasn't, hasn't really happened right hasn't, now. Well, it, it hasn't stopped um, yeah. any of kind of the Russian malfeasance, the, the Russian misbehavior, and so I think there has to be um, clearly a, a different tack taken. Now, I will say, and when we, we talk about this, you know, about the directed energy attacks, yeah. whatever U.S. administration, whether it's the Biden administration. Um, or a subsequent administration, whenever there is conclusive evidence on on what adversary did this, and we will find it, um, that's an enormous foreign mm -hmm. policy challenge because, in my view, these were acts of war that are perpetrated yeah. against U.S. officials. So this is not saying 
you know, we caught a spy. Yeah. Um, this is this is not saying even that there was a cyber attack. These this is an adversary that's been hurt our personnel, yeah. and that's going to be a tough foreign policy challenge. Um, you know, for any administration, I, I can't imagine sitting around that National Security Council meeting. Um, but they should start thinking about it because I think that that day will come soon. You, you know, the last time you were on Politicology, it was a weekly roundup, and we were talking about uh, Saudi Arabia and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and. You presented that as well as a very tough foreign policy challenge, which pitted American interests against American um, ideals, right. essentially. Um, what do you think that the discovery of 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 uh, the actors behind these attacks um, would present a maybe a more compelling? reason to hold those actors accountable? Oh, I that think something it's, is sort of, I, for me, right. I saw Jamal Khashoggi's murder as one of the most horrendous things that could possibly have taken place and yet slap on the wrist, really. Well, well, so, but there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, I agree with you that it was a slap on the wrist. Um, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of disappointment in foreign policy circles that the Biden administration didn't do more, as he promised during the campaign, frankly. But putting that aside, this is, this is one individual and, and Jamal Khashoggi and what happened to him was a tragedy. When we're talking about the directed energy attacks, this is this is in, in far greater numbers, um, and and you know again I, I would leave it to the lawyers, but I, I do call it an act of war, and so ultimately we're going to have to hold the adversary accountable, and I think things such as you know sanctions or PNGing officials is certainly not going to be enough, um, but let me let me say yeah. one more you know one more time I really do think we're going to find out what happened. Okay. You know if you look at uh, you know the new CIA director Bill Burns. Um, and how seriously he's taking this. And if you saw in the press recently, there was, you know, one of the veterans of the bin Laden um, task force, the, the, the bin Laden investigative efforts has now been put in charge of this task force. I did see that. You know, that's, that sends a pretty serious message, yeah. um, you know, to, to, you know, certainly the men and women of, of the U.S. government um, that, that were serious about this. And so ultimately we're going to find out what happened and, yeah. and then what. And, you know, again, if I was, if I was uh, you know, sitting at the National Security Council or at the State Department, I would start thinking about, you know, what are we going to do um, when we find out which actor is responsible? Can you also talk about the focus on Russia you started to employ when you were the deputy chief of operations uh, for for the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center? Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, a pretty unique time. So I, I was, I, I and several others were moved over um, from the Near East operations groups, from the counterterrorism center um, uh, to work on Russia, and this is after the 2016 election interference. So this was a deliberate move by the you know senior operational staff of of the agency, and and I've talked about this, and I you know and they're actually they're actually okay with me talking about this. This was all cleared, okay. um, but one of the things no I, I have to be careful on that. Uh, the publication review board, which I which the CIA's publication review board has been very good to me, and I work with them very closely. Yeah. But but ultimately, you know, we we thought of this as September 12th. Um, uh, you know, 2001, because, you know, America was attacked with what Russia did in 2016. And so we wanted to bring that same kind of ethos and mindset. And so there were a whole bunch of us, you know, who were veterans of those, those, you know, the, the nine, the, the CT campaigns, um, who came over and kind of to take a new kind of uh, approach. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I remember helping write something that went out to the agency workforce. It was called a call to arms. And it was the same, again, a drive that we needed, you know, obviously resources, but people, you know, uh, to volunteer to come help us really push back against the Russians. And then, you know, ultimately, 
it, it is far different than a CT campaign. This had lots of different focuses. And of course, there's a kinetic aspect to it. So we're not going to talk about this, you know, with the Russians. That's yeah, going to happen. Yeah. But CT is counterterrorism. Counterterrorism. I apologize. Yep. No, I'll, I'll use all these. I'll just I bring know, your listeners along. <laughs> we're sitting in our DC bubble. And I'm <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but ultimately, what, what, what I believed we should do, and I think we did quite well, is, and, it's, and it's easy, is you just publicize Russian malfeasance. What they're doing around the world is so bad in so many, um, you, know, you know, facets of, of foreign policy. Again, election interference, cyber attacks, um, political assassinations. So ultimately, our job was to publicize this. Um, and, and, you know, we always talk about, you know, the CIA and what is, you know, uh, you know what is our job in terms of information operations? Yeah. Well, this is easy. We're not making anything up. You're just journalists, you're, essentially. You're, you're reporting exactly. it. Exactly. And so, so and, and I think we were quite successful at that. Um, and, uh, you know, as I left and as I, you know, I had interaction with our European allies in, in the bilateral intelligence relationships, you know, everybody knew full well what the Russians were up to. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, go back to my background, obviously my last name, Polymeralpas, I'm Greek. What we actually saw, and I can't remember the exactly the date, it was clearly between 2016 and, 2000, and 2017 and 2019, but the Greek government actually tossed out a couple of Russian diplomats. If you know the history of Greece, that's extraordinary. The, the Greek-Russian relationship had been very close. And so, you know, we made a lot of headway. And I think that, you know, I, I would expect this is continuing. Um, because Russian bad behavior yeah, continues. Yeah. Can you talk to us about your experiences trying to receive treatment after that 2017 attack and um, maybe more broadly, uh, how the Trump administration approached investigating uh, and treating officials who experienced these symptoms? Sure. So, you know, this is, well, first and foremost, this is not what I want to be remembered for. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I wrote my book yeah. um, and, and I had this kind of, you know, I, I, excellent. I, incredible. Excellent. No, thank you. But, but I, and I had really an, an incredible career, which, which really was no different than many others, but I felt very fortunate to serve. But, you know, obviously I, I, I am known much yeah. more for what happened to me getting sick in Moscow and then my struggle for healthcare. So ultimately, you know, I got when I came back in uh, in December 2017 into 2018 and onwards. I was I was really asking um, to be treated. Something was really wrong. When I came back in mid 2000 by mid 2018, I couldn't work anymore. Um, I had developed you know brain fog. I lost my long distance vision. I couldn't drive. I the, my headaches, which even continue to this day, but we're still you know we're we're still debilitating. Um, but all along, I was asking the agency for treatment, and and I was I was you know, I was denied. And, you know, there's there so many aspects of this to, to kind of to, to think about. But ultimately, it was, a, it was a pretty big leadership fail on the agency's part because, there's, there, you know, it was myself and then several others who were injured. Um, we're not even saying it doesn't matter what it was, but just being denied that basic kind of, you know, not right, but, ba you know, the, just the, the basic need for health care. That violates a pact you make with your leadership. And I always talk about, you know, I was asked to do some really interesting things. I'll leave Dangerous it at that. things. Over the years and always the, with the knowledge that, you know, the agency would have my back if something something went wrong and they didn't on this. And so, it, you know, after after repeated attempts um, through all levels of kind of the operations directorates to, to appeal to our, our medical services staff to get treatment, um, uh, you know, it, it, just, it just didn't happen. And then I had to retire in July of 2019. Um, but my symptoms were getting worse, in fact. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, in October of 2020, I made a really unusual decision to go public. Um, and, you know, I contacted Julia Yaffe, who is an incredible journalist. She was a Russian specialist and, and just a, a wonderful writer because I wanted someone to tell my story. Um, uh, and, and she did. And that caused, you know, quite a, quite a, quite a mess. Um, 
quite a buzz in the media, but quite a mess for me. The agency was not happy about this. Um, but ultimately, there was a lot of pressure put on them by former directors, in fact, you know, calling um, uh, the seventh floor of, of, of the agency. And, and ultimately, I got to go to Walter Reed. Seventh floor is? The seventh floor is the top floor of the CIA where the leadership sits. Okay. okay. Um, so, and, and, you know, it was, it was a, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, incredible journey for me because I'd, I'd spent 26 years in the shadows and to actually go public with something like this. Now, again, I didn't violate my secrecy agreement, right. um, but they were not happy. Let's just, you know, yeah. that, that's to put it plainly. Um, uh, and so it was, uh, it was a, you know, a, a pretty kind of traumatic journey for me, which is, you know, I talk about a lot about the, you know, the physical part of it, my, the pain I had, but also there was a, there was a mental health aspect as yeah. too, because it was a, you know, a moral injury that I suffered. Yes. That's a really good way to put it. So I think that this experience, your experience of the failure of leadership at the agency and under the Trump administration is a really great contrast to, to, to the, to the beautiful book that you've written about leadership. What I like the most about it is that you have these, you have these very personal stories from, let's say, interesting experiences sure. <laughs> that you, dangerous, right. interesting experiences that you've had in the field over your career, and each one of them is meant to 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 teach a lesson. And at the end of each of these is a set of questions that you ask the reader to uh, to get them to apply these lessons to their own life. And I just I think it's extremely useful, not just entertaining and you know interesting for people who like the James Bond style sure. uh, Hollywoodization of of what it's like to serve in the CIA. But it also reminds me a lot of the way Carly Fiorina talks about leadership as well. Just as an aside, but you talk in the book about winning an Oscar. Um, but when you're a leader, there's no night off. Right. And and I wonder how you managed practicing that while experiencing these debilitating headaches. So, you know, I, I think, well, first and foremost, you know, I, obviously I wrote the book after I retired. And so um, as I was really struggling to, you know, during the time at the last about a year, year and a half at, at the agency, I was, you know, I was still trying to work and I had a very senior job at the time. Um, but, it, but at some point I kind of knew I had to, I had to hang it up. And at that time, I did start thinking about, you know, but writing the book. But, it, you know, it, I, I really, you know, I was really just trying to focus to get to, you know, July of 19 where I could, where I could retire. Yeah. Um, one of the really interesting things uh, about the, that I think that I, and I did it on purpose about the book is I didn't really address what happened to me there. Yeah. I wanted to separate the two. Yeah. Um, on purpose. Maybe there'll be another book. Which is why you know? I'm asking you about it. <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 but I, but I did this on purpose because I wanted it to stand alone because yeah. ultimately, you know, the, the seed of the book started where, when I was in Afghanistan, actually in, in 2012. Um, when I, when I realized, and you know, again, that's, that's after what, you know, uh, almost 20 years of my career. But I, I, when I realized I was actually really good at leading, I hadn't yeah. always been that way. Yeah. And so I, I turned into a good leader later on in my career, but most importantly, it was at times of, of crisis at times where there was ambiguity or lack of situational awareness. And I was really comfortable then. Um, and so I started trying to unpack why, and I came up with nine principles and you know, winning an Oscar was, was one of them. Um, I think that, that ultimately you know, you know, uh, the, you know, my, my healthcare journey and, and, you know, how much I, I suffered and, and frankly, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it, how I persevered, you know, a lot of it can, can be found in terms of the lessons that, that I've gone through because so much of, of the book talks about, you know, the need to overcome adversity, yeah. um, and, and the need to have humility and boy, I, I got a lot of big doses of that over the last couple of years with my healthcare journey. Yeah. One of the stories that you tell that, that 
kind of gave me goosebumps and maybe uh, we can give people a little bit of, of a taste sure, of, of the course. book. We, yeah. don't, we won't give the whole thing right. away, but Harper Collins um, gets mad if I start uh, giving all the principles. Course, yeah, uh, of course uh, we won't <laughs> give away the principles, but the reason, the reason I think it's so useful and so effective at what I think you set out to do with it um, is because the combination of the stories and then the principles and the, and the application just go together so well. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about uh, battlefield promotions Oh, sure. and, and when in particular, the story that you that you share in the book about leaving the base. Yep. Uh, and I, I I read it and I just got chills thinking about what that's like for the for the officer that you left in charge. I'm glad you you kind of recognize I did it on purpose. I mean I'm a really good storyteller, yeah. so I love telling stories, but it's all for a reason, and they all come back to a to a principle. Um, but I think the, the you know the the vignette you're talking about is 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 the whole premise that I have. One of my key leadership principles was be a people developer. And so what I did in Afghanistan when I was the base chief there is very often I had to travel throughout the country. So I'm a ba- I'm a chief of a paramilitary base along the Af- Pak Afghan Pakistan Afghanistan border. Um, one of the safest places in the world. It, in fact, Time Magazine at one point <laughs> had a had a cover story. It said it was the most dangerous place in the world. <laughs> Um, of course, I was the one who volunteered for that. Of course. Um, but what I do is if I, if I had to travel back to Kabul, for example, to see, you know, maybe the U.S. military leadership or, or the more senior agency leadership, you know, there was there was no formal chain where I would, I, you know, I was still the base chief. I was still in country. But what I would do is I would go to each, you know, each one of my case officers. And every time I left for 48 hours, I would appoint them as the acting chief. But in my mind only, in our mind, I wouldn't tell, you know, the the station in Kabul about it. But it was an, it was an incredible leadership um, uh, experience for these young officers because you know we were under fire, we were getting rocketed every day. We had to return fire. We were running agent operations. Nothing stops just because I got in a helicopter and left yeah. for forty eight hours, and and there was huge decisions to make. And so in the the vignette in the book is one of my one of my case officers. I'm jumping on the helicopter and he looks at me. and He says, you know, hey chief, I'll, I'll hold down the fort, you know, you know for for forty eight hours. And you know, maybe not the greatest management technique. I grabbed him by his shirt and got in his face, and I said, "No, you won't." I said, "You're going to make every decision. This base is yours right now." And he had, you know, big kind of bug eyes looking at me. And and you know, the fact of the matter is, he did a great job, and and that gave him incredible confidence. So two things, you know, yeah. two, there are two lessons from that. One is later on when we are faced with times of ambiguity and crisis, yeah. and this 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 case officer is a member of my team. I know. He's ready to lead if I'm incapacitated, if he's got to make a decision on his own. So that gives, you know, gives him incredible confidence, gives me confidence yeah. in the team. So times times of crisis, I have people like this who I know are, are you know, have been battle tested. That's really good. And the, 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 the greatest part, the neatest part of the story is, you know, I did a, uh, uh, when the book first came out in, on June 8th was the publication date, I did a book signing in my Thank hometown. Thank you for the advanced copy, by the way. Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, I, did a, I did a book signing in, uh, at, a, at a small indie independent bookstore called Bard's Alley in Vienna, Virginia, my hometown. And who shows up? This case officer, you know, came to, to the book signing. I didn't even know he was back in country. And he told my son and my daughter and I this story. Um, mm-hmm. This exact story, and he had even story read the that book. You just recounted, yeah, he, he, and he hadn't even read the book yet, um, <sighs> because he said that it made such an impression on him. Now he's been a chief of station multiple times afterwards, and you know he actually said to me, and he said to my son, and I missed it, you know, and with all the, you know, the excitement of that that day. Apparently, he said to me, he said, "Mark, you're the best leader I ever had," and I just looked at him and said, "You know, have a nice day or something stupid." And my, later on, my son told me he said that, and then I felt bad, and I wrote him a quick text. Um, but that's why being a people developer is so important. I mean, think about that. So not only did I help develop the team that was very effective on the ground in Afghanistan, but it, you know, but it, it made a profound, you know, it, a profound, it had a profound effect on him for years to come. Um, and I, I like telling this story too, because, you know, I go down to my basement 
and I have all sorts of fancy intelligence medals. You know, I, I, I had, you know, there's, there's a lot of hardware down there. Nobody cares about that. I care. I'll go down with a scotch and think yeah. how great I am. Yeah. Nobody in the CIA cares. What matters is how I pass the torch to the next generation. And, and that's what matters, you know, yeah. developing, you know, the, the next, uh, you know, the next generation of officers, not anything I did in the past. And so, you know, if, if, if I'm remembered as a, as a leader who helped develop others, that's far more important than any kind of fancy metals or hardware. And beyond the remember being remembered for that, that, that legacy is actively protecting America right now. These people are still serving. Sure. Oh, definitely. And that's, you know, that's what I'm, I'm most, um, uh, proud of. And, and again, I really think, I mean, you know, people will forget these operations where I have mm -hmm. all this, you know, where I, where I received a lot of, uh, uh, praise, but, but, uh, you know, if you train the next generation, it is so important. And, yeah. um, you know, at the end of my career, it's funny because you talked about that. You know, I certainly I was lucky to 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 you know reach you know a certain level of seniority, um, but it really wasn't fun in the end. I mean, you know, I, this is you know if you're if you're running you know so this I was in charge of uh, uh, first the deputy and the acting chief of CIA's clandestine operations in Europe and Eurasia. It sounds really kind of sexy and fun. It's a lot of budget. It's a lot of resources. It's a lot of personnel issues. I wasn't running those operations. You know, 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, when I was a line case officer on the streets in the Middle East, that was really fun. Um, and so by the end of my career, what I, the, the value I, I kind of got out of going to work every day was that, you know, people developer part of it is mentoring. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm, you know, I love that vignette in the story. I really believe in it. And, and when that officer came to that book signing, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. I want to pivot away from, we've talked about Havana syndrome. Uh, I want to, I want to talk about how in the book, two of the principles you mentioned are family values. Mm -hmm. You use this phrase, employ the dagger, right. uh, just praising people when they do well, right. um, when they do a good job. On the opposite side of that, we saw Donald Trump publicly side with Vladimir Putin, who we've discussed, in Helsinki after U.S. intelligence officials alleged that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. I've talked to a good handful of people who um, do what you do, have done what you've done, and and have served in the in the way you served, and they mark that moment in recent history as sort of being a turning point for them. It it really affected them, um, and also people who study international relations and just how unprecedented a move like that was for the president of the United States to do. I wonder if you can talk about what that moment was like for you as a CIA officer to hear that from the president. Obviously, with the backdrop of the legacy that you're trying to leave for the officers that you care so sure. much about. So, you know, I, I share that sentiment that that was one of the, you know, certainly one of the darkest days um, uh, of, of my career. Now, th there, are, there are, you know, much worse things that happened. I was, you know, I, I'd been involved with um, operations where our officers were killed or where our agents were killed. So sure. let's, let's put it in sure. perspective. Sure. But, but the Helsinki summit was, was, uh, was, was certainly something that bothered me significantly, I think bothered a lot of people. Um, I, I, I would make, <laughs> I made a lot of different analogies, um, uh, on this over the years. Uh, but, but ultimately, uh, and, and I get, I get in trouble for this all the time, but this is akin to George W. Bush inviting bin Laden in after nine 11 into the oval and just saying, you know, my bad. Um, and, and, you know, I, people go crazy when I say this, but, but that's the feeling that, that I and many others had. Um, really kind of a dark time and a dark moment. Now, there's a lot we can talk about on that. Um, but I will say that, you know, the way that and I, I'm proud, the way the CI family and, and officers reacted, which is just get to work. Um, you had to put that aside. It was such a unusual, tumultuous, um, 
uh, you know, dysfunctional, deflating, you know, I would imagine, uh, discouraging presidency. But yes, yeah. and, and so, but there's nothing we can do other than put our nose, right. you know, nose to the ground and, and keep going. And and one of the things that I think um, I think motivated a lot of us was that we did have, you know, so so the Russians interfered in the 2016 elections. They are not our friend. Mm-hmm. We have a very strange situation in which the, our, our president has an odd affinity for the Russian president. And had that president? Had that's yeah. right. Uh, had I'm sorry. Had, <laughs> Mercifully, uh, 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 no uh, longer. <laughs> had, had, but uh, but there's nothing we can do about that. And so yeah. yes, I dreaded every you know every summit. Yes, I dreaded any time. You know, uh, former President Trump would have to say anything about Russia because we knew it would be bad. But what can we do about what can we do to affect the national security of the United States, which is what we are tasked to do is push back against Russia, is to push our bilateral intelligence ties all across the world. Um, And so, you know, I I think that that, that's the right way to react uh, to this. What I did do after I retired is I became much more outspoken about what I had seen um, and, and heard. And it was pretty awful. Yeah. And and I think that you know whether you um, you know you you know the history is going to going to going to judge I think this that that administration very poorly when it comes to you know uh, certainly about the U.S. Russian relationship mm-hmm. um, and one day you know someone will come to us with the Russian intelligence archives and we'll yeah. find out I mean people always ask me you know all the time you know what what was the relationship be- between President Trump and 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 Russia if there ever was yeah. one. And you know, I, I look back to the, you know the Matrokin archives. There's a, there was you know Matrokin archives. This is a this is a a Soviet um, uh, KGB officer who defected. This is decades and decades ago. Brought out a treasure trove of information and gave it to the British. And there's there's books that are written on this. One day we'll find out, mm. um, you know, what happened. Um, you know what exactly uh, yeah. the Russians thought or had on 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 President Trump. But you know, until then, you know, I just I'll, I'll remember those days. You know, not not too fondly because. Um, it's not not something I ever thought yeah. I would ever see any yeah. U.S. elected official, let alone a president, yeah. um, do. And you know, particularly taking sides with President uh, uh, President Putin against the U.S. intelligence community that was that was a dark moment. Yeah, and you mentioned you know, there's not much you can do about it. He's the, he's a sitting president of the United States, right? There's no, you have a job to do, right? And that job really doesn't change. And yet he accused the deep state, quote unquote, over and over again of, of being out to get him, fomenting conspiracies about the intelligence community. And, and I wonder, you know, how, how did that impact the officers, you know, who, who even after something like the Helsinki summit, who said, like you did, we have to put our nose back to the grindstone. We have to do this job. Right. After that continued rhetorical assaults against the community that right. is tr- doing their best, putting their lives on the line every moment of every day to produce the best possible inf- information intelligence so that this man can make decisions about the future sure. of the country, the world. How does that affect morale? And how does that differ from the way other presidents have affected the morale of the intelligence oh, community? Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, you've been there for a long, you've been there for a long time. Right. So. And I think it was, I served under four different presidents. Um, and, and of course, you know, with current, uh, president Biden, he is, he has been a, uh, you know, a connoisseur, a practitioner of, of foreign policy has had incredible contact, um, with the CIA every time, you know, he sat on the Senate select committee on intelligence. He's visited, you know, uh, you know, CIA headquarters and CIA offices abroad. Um, and leadership in, as a general, you know, skill. Absolutely. So, yeah. so there's, there's a huge difference, but, but going back to, so, so the, the, the dysfunction of the Trump administration was as follows. You had a president who had this affinity for Putin and would say things in public that would drive everyone to distraction and certainly did affect morale. There's no doubt. You can't not uh, be affected. Yet, 
there also were policies that were put in place that were tough on the Russians. You had some Russia hawks in the administration, whether it's you know uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis um, or former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was a just a wildly dysfunctional place, um, uh, uh, and and you had to kind of you had, you had kind of hinge your day to day outlook on countering the Russians and what we're actually doing on the ground. And so whether it was again whether it was uh, uh, sec, you know former uh, SecDef Mattis or or Bolton. General McMa- uh, General McMaster as well. The, you know the previous National Security Advisor. These are Russia hawks. We had Fiona Hill in the White House, uh, you know, and the National Security Council. No one was soft on Russia around the president except the president. <laughs> except the president. And so it's just it's a it's a wildly dysfunctional, confused state of affairs where you know we have to you just put your again put your nose down, do your job, and what we're tasked to do. Push back on the Russians and try to ignore you know the public statements or tweets um, which are wildly offensive. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, and it, I, it was unprecedented. I mean, no one has ever seen, you know, anything like that, you know, from an administration, I will tell you, I don't want to get too much off on, on an aside. Yeah. I saw an interview yesterday with former secretary of state Pompeo, where he called the, the state department, the state department officials, um, you know, he, he said he'd never seen such incompetence. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but, but, you know, there's, there's absolutely no reason to say things like this. Um, it had to do with the missing bottle of whiskey, you know, that $6,000 missile oh. bottle of whiskey that was a gift from the government of Japan, which is, I don't think it's, I hope, I hope it's yeah. protective detail drank it. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, the, these, these kind of statements are, are, are yeah. demoralizing the workforce because the men and women of the intelligence community or the diplomatic service are on the front line. Um, you know, they're the ones standing on the ramparts and uh, it would always mystify me why, why we would, we would, um, you know, diminish and, uh, and ultimately I think it's a betrayal uh, to those who really kind of you know, uh, uh, dedicated their lives to protecting America. Well, not only that, but it also says a whole lot less about the people he's speaking about and a lot about him, about, about the, about, of the, course. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of bad leaders in office, when I spoke with John Seifer, uh, your friend's colleague of many years, fellow deep state veteran <laughs> of the Vienna Inn. Yeah. Um, and general <laughs> Hayden, uh, back during the campaign, which by the way, I just have to say, I think that Getting to uh, interview General Hayden was one of the highest, um, you know, privileges of, of recent memory. He's a wonderful I mean, man. Yep. Just a wonderful man. And a great leader. And, and, a, and a, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I take your word for it. I, I saw him made some, make some incredibly tough decisions. Yeah. Um, and and I have, you know, the utmost respect for him. And, and frankly, he's also one of the people who reached out to me really? as I went public on my health concerns, just not understanding why the agency – you know, which he ran and loved, yeah. um, wasn't wasn't helping me. But he's a he's a, yeah. a wonderful man, and um, you know, obviously we we, yeah. we you know we wa- we're watching you know with great hope his his progress um, and recovery. Yes, for our listeners, um, General Hayden had a had a stroke and still suffers from aphasia, and actually that's the reason that it was so striking to me um, that 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 he thought it was so important during the height of one of the most important maybe the most important presidential election in in history, um, to, through his aphasia, express just how important right. he thought it was that we vote for Joe Biden. Right. And, um, and, you know, this is, this is, Extremely unusual for someone of his stature and and experience to to do. Um, having, I think he's the only person to have ever led both the NSA and, and the, the CIA. CIA. Yeah. So and, you know, there, there's you you bring up a great point because you know, and, and and I and I know some of my former colleagues weren't happy when I was when yeah. I was speaking out, but and and certainly I'm not of the same 
you know, uh, you know, stature as General Hayden. But when former senior officials have spoken out against uh, uh, what they saw in the Trump administration, you know, this this did go against the norm. I mean, you're not supposed to do this, yeah. um, whether it's, you know, U.S. military yeah. or or in the intelligence community. Not illegal, but just frowned upon. Absolutely not illegal, but yeah. frowned upon. But the fact that they did, I think, is an, an incredible, uh, you know, indication of how how you know, tumultuous and unusual. I'm being kind here. And, you know, yeah. ultimately, you know, you know, crazy some of the things are that, that, that we saw. And so um, I don't think it's going to be something that is going to be repeated uh, in the future, but I don't think we're going to have a president um, like, 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 like Trump was in, in the future as well. Even, you know, you, you know, you see what's going to happen in, you know, the next election cycle. And so, so, I, you know, I, I, I applaud General Hayden uh, and others for, for, you know, being outspoken because they did so out of and do so out of patriotism yeah. and love of country. Yeah. And by the way, you know, I, I don't know their political affiliation, but I, you know, some of, these, some of these <laughs> folks clearly were not, you know, you know, from the hard left at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, they likely voted Republican in every election they've yeah. ever, you know, uh, participated in, but they still felt the need to speak out. And they love their country. Yeah. Yeah. So when I spoke with uh, John Seifer and General Hayden back during the campaign, they talked about how Trump would never have been able to get a job in intelligence because he would have been a huge risk and lacked the temperament for the job. And reading your book, it's striking just how profoundly Trump's behavior offends the leadership principles that you outline in the book. I mean, he he consistently cuts corners. He totally lacks any humility. He has no ability to mask how he's feeling and put on a strong face. Certainly, you could not imagine him offering anyone a uh, battlefield promotion in the way that you did to cultivate people. And so could you talk about what the risks are for our country when we don't have good leaders in office? And maybe even more importantly, how can we assess these leadership skills in other people especially the people to whom we are considering giving considerable power in the form of elections. Sure. No, I, I think that, you know, when you, when you take a look at the leadership principles, um, you know, it's no accident that, you know, you can, you can compare it uh, <laughs> or contrast it with, uh, w- with the former president. I didn't write that. I'm sure know, it was not in mind. Yeah. No. Um, but, 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 but I, I, but I also think Trump was a, a, you know, a, a you know, a historically poor leader um, uh, in, in, in so many different aspects. Uh, uh, but, but I think you, 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 you hit it nail right on the head in terms of, you know, one of my favorite leadership principles, which is the, you know, the need for humility. Um, and, and that's something that he had, uh, you know, none of. And so if you, if you go through all the principles in the book, as just, as you said, so, you know, do you develop people? Um, uh, do you learn from adversity? Um, you know, c- can you, can you lead in, in times of crisis? I mean, you know, you do want the senior most uh, individuals in power in, in the United States to, to be able to do so. And, and mostly, or, or just as importantly, you want to have people around them as well um, who have those same kind of leadership skills. Because, of course, you know, the president, you know, you know, has to have a trusted circle of advisors. I think that's at the end of the Trump administration. That was, you know, people's biggest worry. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, after, He'd cycled through all of the people who knew how to steer a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I, 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 absolutely. Um you know, I, I think that one of the things that upset me the most about the Trump administration, about Trump himself, um, but but the administration is their failure to, you know, protect those uh, underneath them. And so, and, and I go back to the whistleblowers um, and the idea that, that you know, whistleblowers, uh, uh, you know, during that time um, were castigated, were, you know, p- there were p- the people on the right were trying to out them. I mean, that kind of goes against, uh, you know, fundamental leadership principles. And And I didn't see the cabinet level officials in the various agencies defending their people either. For fear of Trump, um, so you know, look, I think at the end of the day, he's a he was a spectacularly 
you know, poor leader for, you know, for so many of the, uh, the, the principles, the reasons I, I laid out in my book. And, and I think about what I teach my kids just about being a good person. Um, you know, you know, you know, if, you know, not, not being a religious person, but following the 10 commandments, you know, don't lie, cheat, steal, um, treat people with respect. You know, uh, I talk a lot about in public that, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant and I was born in Greece. My wife, um, who's also, you know, just retired from the, from the CIA as well. Where in Greece were you born? I was born in, in my, well, my, in my Athens. mom actually went to labor on Mykonos, ah, and, okay. but I was, I was born in Athens. Okay. You know, my wife is from Lebanon and she, she served for, you know, for 27 years, one year more than I did, um, uh, in the CIA. We're immigrants. I found it grossly offensive, all the attacks on, on immigrants from, from Trump himself. Um, I just didn't think he was a good person. I had a, I had a conversation the other day with um, a former, very senior administration uh, official, and he's asking me why, why I, you know, what, why didn't you like Trump? And I said, because I thought he was just an awful human being, mm-hmm. um, and that just really offended me as as a person. Um, nothing to do, you know. And yeah. we we can talk about policies. plenty of other reasons, but, but and, that, and and yeah. you know, but you know, and, and then and then to be fair, there's there's some things that Trump did, you know, policy wise, which yeah. which I think the Biden administration is, is continuing. Yeah, you know, there is a shift, there's a pivot yeah. to China. Yeah, okay, that's that that was not good, yeah. that's a good thing. Getting NATO to pay more, yeah. you know, pay probably their their fish, probably a good thing. Yep. Um, and, and so you know, we have to be careful on not you know uh, yeah. uh, demonizing everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, but boy, when it comes to leadership, I, I don't think you can find anybody. Um, at least, you know, in the leadership genre who would point to President Trump as someone to to emulate. Yeah. And I think that you can probably trace some of the worst offenses of the Trump administration, setting aside a lot of the policy things, some of the worst things that he did in office, I think you can trace back to the lack of these leadership skills and principles. Right. Um, and so back, back to making that assessment as practical as we can for people who are listening, um, you know, the next election in most states is uh, a year and a half away. But I think it's important for us as participants in this democracy to learn how to identify these these traits in the people who are asking for our right. for, for power. And I wonder, you know, I, I don't think I share your optimism in that we will never have a, a president, at least a candidate like Trump again. I think there are lots of wannabe Trumps bringing up right now. And I think that a lot of them are going to get power. And I wonder... If you think there's any way that we can make these sort of core qualifications for serving the American public more forefront issues mm-hmm. in in the campaign uh, as opposed to something that we really don't think about because it gets drowned out in the noise of you know what are you going to do for me and what poli- you know and and really culture war issues is there any way that we can learn to look more for character and leadership ability as sort of the 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 minimum requirements for getting power in this very tumultuous history period period in American history. Yeah, well, I, I would certainly hope so, um, but I think there's so much in the political uh, you know uh, space that doesn't it, it argues that that that's not going to happen. So think about uh, you know how someone runs as a candidate. I mean, this is you know I mean you know all about this, but think about a primary. You know what you have to do. Um, uh, to to win a primary, so so you know, are we going to see the Will Hurds uh, of, of the world? You know, a former congressman from Texas who, in all uh, uh, by all definitions, is a true moderate. Um, uh, you know, are we going to see someone like that be able to be successful? Um, he's a former CIA officer as well, so I have to you know throw that in there. Um, but but you know, you would think that that should be the the future of the Republican Party, a moderate. Um, he's, you know, he's African American. Uh, he was from a, a you know, uh, his his constituents were, you know, uh, certainly 
um, you know, heavily, heavily Latino uh, uh, representation. He understands where the Republican Party has to go. I would argue he has no chance or someone like him has no chance, in, you know, in winning a primary anywhere. Um, and, and whether you, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that's, you know, you want people like him who are much more moderate. I just don't see it. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so I might, you know, I, I don't think the, the future is bright now. Um, you know, what would I look for in future in, in candidates and, you know, future p- political leaders? So, you know, I go back to that, that, you know, that key part that people always ask me, what was the best, best trait, the best character you'd look for in a CIA officer? And I would say humility. Yeah. I would say, I would say you can argue this, the same thing for, for a politician. Um, being humble is not being weak at all. No. Um, you know, being humble is not believing your own hype. Because bad things happen sometimes, but just you know, and, and you know, it's it's being able to question yourself, being able to reassess, um, and and I think that's a, that's a trait that's you know really you know it's it's often overlooked amongst our our you know political class and leaders, but it's something that certainly in the CIA that really helped make very successful officers. Yeah, you know this better than we do, uh, but we've seen a lot of these types of bad leaders and wannabe authoritarians all over the world. Um, Lukashenko is in the news right now because of the Olympian who defected from Belarus. Um, Anne Applebaum, who I interviewed on the show, wrote about politicians in Poland and Italy and Spain who are or are moving toward authoritarian. Mm -hmm. What are the factors pushing countries across the globe further away from democracy and and what lessons do you think we can learn – uh, to try to protect dem- democracy domestically. Yes, and so I think Anne Applebaum's recent piece yeah. on this was was fantastic, and you know, you, and you can't be disturbed. Uh, you know, if, if, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I read that, and I was, I was, you know, deeply you can't upset. Not be, yeah. You can't not yeah, be yeah, disturbed yeah. after after yeah. you read that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> because ultimately, you know, you know, where is the world order? Where you know, where right. are we shifting to? Right. I, I, you know, I still am a believer in that. You know, the old saying that America is a bright you know, shining city on the hill. Yeah. I'm, I have to believe that because that's what I did my whole career is, is kind of push yeah. that notion for others to, you know, to assist us as, yeah. as we're running operations. We're trying to recruit, um, you know, foreigners, spies to come work for the United States. Well, a lot of it is based on that ideal. Um, but, you know, the, the, you know, the, the political trends are, are not promising. And I think that there was, there's certainly been, at least in, you know, in, in my generation, there was always a thought that um, you know, the rise of fascism, the rise of the far right could never happen again yeah. after what happened in World War II. Because, well, because of American exceptionalism, actually. Because, yeah. because of American exceptionalism. And, 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 I, and I think that, you know, what you see, um, uh, you know, around the world does kind of shake that belief a little bit. I mean, and so, so you know, how do we count, counter that in, in Europe and other places? Um, well, I certainly think it doesn't help that Tucker Carlson is, is you know, has spent the last week in Hungary. We're going to save that for uh, a plus segment. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. so and, and again, the, that idea of American exceptionalism, the idea of America having that, um, you know, you know, pushing these democracies and ideals always was for me kind of the bulwark against a rise of fascism. Yet you have a political class now in the United States that is kind of leaning towards that. And I think that's really dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I always would wonder – and particularly in the Trump administration, where I had headquarters assignments, I wasn't overseas. But I have friends who were, you know, were certainly, um, you know, serving overseas then, watching Trump cozy up to dictators and autocrats. Um, and I would ask them, "What's it like going to a diplomatic reception?" And, yeah. <laughs> and their answer would be, "It's not easy when, um, you know, uh, uh, the the <laughs> I, I got I, I don't want to insult yeah. all different countries. When <laughs> it's not easy when ambassadors from countries that we are not our friends come up to us and give give me a wink and a nod. Yeah. That all of a sudden, you know, we're same same. Um, yeah. That is not the way it was in in Ooh, you know that in would my be creepy. 
two and a half decades. But that's that was the effect of of Trump and his um, you know fascination with the Erdogan's uh, you know Turkish President uh, uh, Erdogan. Um, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, of the world, and so I, I that so so I think the election of Joe Biden does mean something, um, because there, you know we don't have you know that that symbol that America mm. is is leaning too far towards autocracy, even though you see that happening um, within the country. But Ann Applebaum's piece was was fantastic and, and really yeah. disturbing, and and you know again I'm Greek, so you know I, yeah. I travel to Europe, I I you know tons of friends in Europe, and it's a it's a big concern for me. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Erdogan, and this is a guy who, on U.S. soil, had his thugs, right. whatever you want to call them, beat up journalists right. on American soil here in D.C. That happened. That that That's is of extremely course, significant. That is very significant, and I and I think that one of the things you know when I talk about my, um, you know, my time, uh, uh, you know, uh, the last two years of my career when when Trump was in office, and how upset I was over things like Helsinki, yeah. the, the Helsinki summit, or. Um, any of his any of his meetings or relationships or, or phone calls with uh, with Vladimir Putin. Don't forget his the relationship with uh, with Turkish President Erdogan. Um, that too was to me deeply troubling um, uh, because again Trump just had this affinity for kind of right wing autocratic dictators, and and I think that is that was that was extremely damaging. The election of Joe Biden has has helped you know assuage that a bit, but we still have that. That trend happening, uh, you yeah. know, uh, it, it, with the uh, with the uh, with the Republican Party, and and I just I don't understand that. Yeah, um, it's almost like we forgot what happened, yeah. you know, in, in World War II. Mark, before I let you go, is there anything you you're doing a lot of these interviews, right? You're on a book tour. Sure. Is there anything that you wish someone would ask you that they haven't asked you that you haven't had an opportunity to speak to yet? Uh, so I, uh, yes. And, and I think people, and, and it's, you know, we're, we're going to get into the, the, my favorite subject was my family. Yeah. Um, but things I love, uh, you know, talking about, but people don't ask me much is what was it like for my kids? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, to, uh, to, to see the world and, and to have two parents, you know, in the, uh, in the CIA. And, and so, you know, and, and you know, I, w- I was wondering, is there any kind of negative effects on them? I mean, you know, I, I talk about, uh, in the book that, you know, there was an attack, I was in the U S government facility where, Al Qaeda attacked us, and uh, and you know there was gunfire in the you know in the front of the facility in the back. You know a car bomb hit didn't go off. Um, my kids watched that you know from a mile away, and they you know they still talk about it to this day. They thought my wife and I were both were both dead. Um, there's so many instances over the years where just strange things happen. It, yet yet also we would be serving in the Middle East, and an Arab prince would come over. Um, or, you know, uh, you know, I would, I would have to fly back and I'd hit, get them, you know, a hitch a ride with the, you know, the deputy director of the CIA's airplane. Um, I've had, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Navy SEALs at our house or, or, you know, Air Force Predator pilots. And so they've had this kind of crazy, wild, um, uh, you know, childhood of camping in the desert in Wadi Rum in Jordan, you know, for example, wow. under the stars. And so, so, you know, really incredible times, but, um, but ultimately I think that, and, and this is why I, I raised this is that I think they were incredibly resilient during COVID and all the lockdowns and, and both of them are in college. And so they had these, you know, really not pleasant experiences of, of going to college, but do, doing zoom calls, you know, uh, you know, as they're sitting in their dorm, they couldn't even go to classes. And I'm of course paying for that. Um, <laughs> uh, but their resiliency, I think really is a result of, of their time, um, you know, growing up in five different countries, you know, all over the world. And so, I think that would be the, you know the, the the question that I, I wish I was asked more is you know what was it like for your kids and 
And maybe if they were, you know, if they were here with it with me today, that would be they terrific, could, man. Could, we should get them in studio. They could talk about that I mean, too. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll leave you with one one great um, yeah. uh, anecdote. So we were in the Middle East one time, and we had this beautiful apartment. It was overlooking, uh, you know, a, a busy street. And I walk out, and I see my daughter, and she has a pen and a paper. And I said, you know, I said, Alex, what are you doing? She said, I'm I'm writing down license plates. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? She goes, well, you know, you and mom talk about what surveillance is and counter surveillance. So I'm checking to see if the same car is going to come by. And I walked back in to, to, to talk to my wife and I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What have we done? <laughs> <laughs> the next Polymeropolis, the so next officer at Polymeropolis. Pretty, pretty resilient kids. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, and so and, and they really kept me grounded and. And, you know, I mean, you know, they, they told stories of, you know, I, I'm calling from the tarmac of, you know, Baghdad airport as I, I went in with the, um, the invasion, um, you know, on a, on a Thuraya phone. And so they just, they have all these wild stories and, uh, yeah, but they've been wonderful and, and, you know, certainly, you know, kept me going in a lot of, a lot of tough times. Beautiful. For more of those wild stories, you can check out Clarity in Crisis. Leadership lessons from the CIA. Where can everybody get the book? Where's the best place to do that? Uh, Amazon. Okay. Um, Book.com is the book landing page. Okay. Um, and it's available in some independent bookstores. One of my friends just was at the Miami airport and he said he saw it there and he sent me a picture. Uh, so I thought that was I pretty cool. I did see it actually. In, yeah. I think I might have seen it in the Nashville airport. There I just got Good. back from a awesome. conference. Um, Mark, this has been a pleasure and a privilege. Um, where can everybody find you on the internet if they want to connect? So I'm. Um, uh, and on Twitter, it's at M Polymer, which you'll get a whole dose of, <laughs> of baseball, <laughs> politics, the intelligence community, myself and John Cipher making fun of each other. He I thinks, see a lot of that. He thinks it's I never pick watch. up the tab at the Vienna Inn. <laughs> um, but it's, it's at M Polymer. And then, um, uh, uh, you know, on Twitter, of course, you can do uh, DMs, direct messages. And, and yep. I, I answer everybody. Oh wow! Um, so, so you I, are a brave man. No, I do, and and, and in particular, there's I, you know I have I have a kind of a neat thing going with a whole bunch of college kids who yeah. want to want to join the intelligence community. Oh, so I kind of help so mentor cool. them as well. Um, but yeah, it's at M Polymer, and it'll it's it's never dull. That's really cool. <laughs> All right, Mark, we'll have you back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode on the main feed. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist, look further down the road than everybody else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, colleagues. You know, podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review there. And this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.